Once again, welcome back to our Wednesday night Bible study. Tonight, we're going to go back to Numbers chapter 22 as we were closing up a couple of weeks ago. We and I, I do beg your indulgence. I beg your pardon. I have a goal in mind uh, to try to cover a certain amount of chapters each week. Sometimes uh, we achieve that goal. Sometimes we do not. But one thing I committed to you and what I've committed to myself as a teacher is not to uh, not to rush through anything. Uh, if there's potential there for misunderstandings or if there's important issues or doctrines that need to be addressed. And I got convicted last week after the class is over that I, I did that with the story of Balaam, that what should have been, you know, a, a much deeper dive and much more uh, exposition, explanation given, I, I pushed it into a period of about 10 minutes and maybe 12 minutes. And that is, and that is always, uh, I think, dangerous to do and can leave people with uh, the wrong idea or unfulfilled questions, unanswered questions. So tonight we're going to go back through the story of Balaam a little slower and address, I, I, to me, what I see is three very important issues that come out of this story. And then uh, if you have any other questions or comments on the story, then uh, we'll address those. And if we get through it all tonight, uh, we can continue on. But the rest of the book of Numbers will not take us very long. I, uh, when I set out, my, my goal was to cover the entire Old Testament in 2022. It is July. We are in book number four of 39. I don't think we're going to get through the whole Old Testament in 2022. Unless something very strange happens. But uh, I do think that these are necessary uh, foundational stories to the story of God, to the revelation that we have received through the Holy Scriptures. And uh, the story of Balaam will echo through the history of Israel, and it will be even brought up a number of times in the New Testament. So it is one of the keys that deserves our attention. So I know we covered the story last week, but let me just remind you where we are in the big picture. Moses and the children of Israel have now spent 40 years wandering through the wilderness. Uh, uh, and over this period of time, the generation of those that refused to go into Canaan, that uh, believed the spies' report that they could not conquer the land, that generation was condemned along with Moses and Aaron to die in the wilderness. So. That process, over time, has taken now to about 40 years. Uh, but now we've kind of reached the end of that stage, and Israel has gathered on the borders of Edom and Moab to begin uh, setting itself up for the invasion and conquest of Canaan. So if you're looking at this on a map, if you have a map in the back of your Bible or see one online, you look at that area 
in the Middle East, you have Canaan, uh, which is to the east of the Jordan River. So if you see the Jordan River, you kind of use that as your center line. The east side of that, that's Canaan. That's the promised land. That's what God commanded the children of Israel to take 40 years earlier, and which they refused. And on the west side of that Jordan River, you have what today, you know, modern times, is the country of Jordan. But back then, you would have countries or, or groups of tribes like Ammon, Moab, Edom. You have the Midianites there. We're looking at that region right around the Dead Sea, sort of on the southwest corner of where the Dead Sea and the Jordan River meet up. Israel's coming there. That's where they're going. They're going to launch their invasion right there as they cross over the Jordan uh, and into Jericho. So as they've been traveling this direction, of course, the tribes in this area, the people in this area, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Midianites, they have been resisting the nation of Israel. They have for whatever reason, whether it's jealousy, they don't want to see Israel, are they afraid that Israel, as they pass through, will will plunder their resources, or just animosity? These are all related peoples. If you know the history, Edom, descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, Midian, the son of Abraham by Keturah, Moab, and Ammon, the sons of Lot. Abraham's nephew. Uh, so these are all cousins. These are these are all tribes that share a similar cultural history, a similar uh, language. They can speak to each other, and there are some jealousies, some rivalries going on here. And as they come up to Moab, the king of Moab, Balak, conspires with the tribal elders or the chiefs or the sheiks of Midian to hire the prophet Balaam to come and curse the children of Israel. Now, we started this conversation last week about how curses work and uh, whether curses are still a part of uh, the spiritual war that we are dealing with today. And I, I want to go back to that before we go any farther, because the question of spiritual warfare is critical not just to the story of Balaam and the children of Israel, but to all of the things that are, are going to be happening as Israel goes through this land. They're warned time and time and time again not to get involved with the local uh, Baals and the local Ashtoreths and the local deities because of, uh, or the local idols because they are God's people. They are Jehovah's people, Yahweh's people, and they are to have no other gods in association with him. So this curse that Balak is asking for from Balaam is designed to give the Moabites and the Midianites the ability to drive Israel out of their land. We don't know exactly what it was. Maybe it was the invocation of some kind of plague or illness or disease. Maybe it was something else. Uh, But we know that it, it did involve the process of divination. That's why they sent for Balaam. Balaam was a prophet. He was a fortune teller. He was a diviner. He was a practicer of the occult. Uh, These were very common practices in his day. Every tribe or every region would sort of have somebody who would 
specialized in reading the signs, reading the omens, uh, was supposed to have the ability for the right price, with the right sacrifice, with the right gift. Uh, they could they could tell you whether you know you were going to be prosperous in your business adventure, or whether the woman you want to marry would have children, or whether the land that you wanted to sow would would reap a bountiful harvest, or if you were a king. One of these diviners, one of these mediums would be able to forecast for you when it would be the best time to go to war, when would be the best time to sign a, a covenant or sign an agreement, uh, who should rule after you, who's a threat to you as a ruler. Um, this is, you, you'll find these kind of people in, in, every, in every ancient culture. Rome had them, Greece had them, Babylon had them, Persia had them, Egypt, all over. Uh, these were very common professions, if you will. And yet God had been very specific with Israel. They were not to use people like this at all. They were never to consult the sorcerer or the witch. They were never to seek a medium, seek the advice of the dead. They were never to, they were not to tattoo themselves or cut themselves or do anything else to show any sort of occultism uh, among the, the tribes of Israel. And so, in sending for Balaam, Balak is declaring spiritual war on Israel. Now the question came up, do these kind of things actually work? And I gave a, I gave a short answer to that, but I want to go into it a little deeper tonight. I want to get a better grasp of this area of, of the Bible because we're going to come back to it on a number of other occasions. So let's understand this, that spiritual weapons are genuine and they are used against God's people under the direction of spiritual hosts of wickedness in high places. Now the question is, how effective can these weapons be against God's people? And genuine believers uh, can disagree as to, the, as to the degree of efficacy that these occult practices can have. Now, we would understand today that many of those who practice the occult for profit, for wage, are no doubt frauds and charlatans and, and rip-off artists and they're scam artists. And, you know, if you sit down to have your palm read or, your, or get your tarot reading or whatever that is, the odds are significantly against the person you're dealing with actually having any real power in this area. That being said, there's no question that demons can possess people and give them certain occultic gifts, if you will, uh, counterfeits of the kind of gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to, to each one of us. Uh, there's no question that in some cultures, the practice of the occult is accepted and, uh, and respected and is regarded as part of that culture's heritage. And those who come up in such cultures can uh, be heavily influenced to believe in these powers or these practices. And indeed, some of these cultures try to, try to find Christian ways of incorporating some of these occult practices into the Christian faith. So you'll have a 
a religion like Santeria or Voodoo, uh, both of these religions will use crosses, will use saints, will use scriptures, will use different uh, uh, Christian ideas in combination with occultic practice or occultic symbols, and that can cause a lot of confusion. That can open some doors that really should never be open. And we are warned by the Apostle Paul that these hosts of wickedness are on the attack and that we are given specific instructions in Ephesians chapter 6 that we should gird ourselves or, or that we should always wear our spiritual armor, wear our spiritual armor at all times because these forces are always looking for an opportunity or an advantage to uh, come against God's people. So if we're not fully and completely covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, if we're not fully and completely uh, covered in the armor of righteousness and truth and peace and faith, uh, then there is certainly the possibility of these demonically inspired attacks affecting the lives of believers. Right, so do I have any comments or questions so far? Yes, Pastor. We are assuming, and I think it um, can be assumed that um, you, you said that this is um, about spiritual warfare. Uh, Moses and the children of Israel doesn't know or didn't know what was going on in the, in the spiritual realm. But we, we read in um, we are the, 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 the Moabites were sure afraid of the of, the, of Israel because of course there were many and what they have heard and what they were matter of fact the Bible say and the English version said that the Moabites were distressed because of the children of Israel. I'm just wondering spiritual warfare. Once um, we our lives are hidden in Christ and we are following God's word and we are of course covered by the blood and we too um, are, are going to be shielded by God's um, protection and care. And sometimes we get to ourselves worried when it is the enemy who is worried about, you know, <laughs> uh, afraid of us. Instead of us being afraid of, of them, they become afraid of us because especially when we, we seek the Lord in prayer in fasting and we putting up his word, of course, this will make our, enemy, um, our enemies tremble. I mean, they're those in the, the spiritual realm I'm talking about. I agree. They should be more afraid of us than we are of them. Yes. No question. Uh, and, and the role that fear plays, you know, many occult um, practices are specifically designed to create fear, to create a sense of uh, intimidation or, you know, it, and, and I don't want to marginalize anyone's cultures or, you know, we, we all grew up with different ways of expressing our fear of the occult, you know, the, the zombie phenomenon of, of some cultures or, you know, other cultures dealt with the fear of werewolves or vampires or uh, ghosts or you know, witches or, or whatever, you know, all of these things were designed to inspire that dread, that distress. Um, but I agree with you. We've got, we've got the armor of God. We've got the Holy Spirit. 
We've got the Word of God. It is the demons who should tremble at our presence. And yet, I think I would caution all of us not to be demon hunters, not to be ones to go about seeking out confrontation with the enemy. We will have plenty of confrontations. The enemy will come at us many, many times. But I agree, we have not been given the spirit of fear, uh, but of a sound mind, because we know that all of these forces, however real or not real they may be, they have been defeated already by the, the blood of Jesus Christ. Anyone else want to speak to that or any other question we've covered on the ground we've covered so far? Yes, Bishop. Um, you know, being coming from the island, Trinidad in particular, where we have, um, you know, a lot of Hindus, we have Muslims, we have those practicing the shady religion, so to speak, um, you know, with the Christian emblem. In my particular um, town that I live in, it was predominantly um, Hindu, and they their priests would have certain days that the villagers will come, people will come from the south of the island to see this particular um, Hindu priest because he apparently had a lot of spiritual powers. You know, they would open um, their holy books, quote-unquote, and would be able to read people's future. Um, you know, they govern a lot of things that they would do in life when they can get married, when they can travel, when they can build a house. And it's really um, a lot of bondage. But, you know, and it's really the enemy that, that, that works here. And, you know, people would live in fear and live in bondage to these, to these things. And um, even Pastor Kibiu had shared with me, you know, his personal experiences in Africa, um, you know, when they go to different villages um, to preach the gospel, even different states, so to speak, um, where they have to be well prayed up because the enemy will come up, will shut their mouth, they can't even speak. And um, it's a lot that, you know, that they would go through preach that gospel of Jesus Christ, they have to be prayed up and fasted, you know, fasting um, to be effective to really come against these forces of darkness because they are real to them. They get real opposition. A lot of things we read about, they experience it. Yes, and I think it speaks well to the power of faith and, and how people's lives, how their minds can be shaped by what they believe and how the enemy can take advantage of those beliefs. You mentioned this Hindu priest, whether or not his power was real power or whether it was simply so believed to be so that it would actually affect the lives of the people that came to him is materially, there's no difference. You think that you're cursed, it doesn't really matter whether you are cursed or not. If you think you're cursed, you're going to, you know, your life is going to manifest a lot of that power. And we know that a person who is demonically possessed or a person that is in fellowship with demons will have a lot of supernatural 
insights and revelations that um, you know will certainly, uh, you know, if you were to hear someone begin to speak about things you had done in your past or things you had done in secret or you know that kind of thing, it's it's going to definitely lock in. You you use the right term, bondage. It's bondage, that fear of those powers. And for those who preach the gospel in those kind of cultures, you better be prayed up. You better address the powers that are there. And I say that carefully because we can go too far with this. We can, we can, you know, there, there are programs that people in America have tried to start with identifying spiritual powers in over certain cities, over certain territories. And I, I think we've, I think there's danger here of investing more of our time and energy and thought into the enemy that should be rightfully invested into the Lord. Um, I think if you've got Jesus, if you've got God, if you've got the Holy Spirit, whatever revelation you need to address in those areas, you'll be given and it will be shown to you. I, but I still want us to be very clear that these occult powers and practices are subject to the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we can, you know, we can certainly acknowledge that they're real and that they're there, but Christ is superior all thrones and mights and dominions and powers. Now, you say, well, if he's in charge, why does he allow these spiritual powers and spiritual hosts to continue on? Well, two reasons. One is by them, uh, those who reject the gospel are judged. This is part of that Romans 1. You talk about curses. Probably the worst curse in all the Bible is in Romans chapter 1, where God gives people over to their reprobate minds. But the other reason is, I think, equally important, and that is that Paul talks about it in the same book where he talks about the spiritual armor and the spiritual war. He talks about, I think it's in chapter 3 of Ephesians, he talks about this testimony that the church has been called to give in the presence of these spiritual powers. And uh, I won't go too deeply into that tonight, but that's, a, that's worth a thought. That you know, you mentioned, sister, growing up in a, a Hindu environment, what a testimony you are to the saving grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to those who are in that community, and that goes for those that were raised in in communities that practice Voodoo or Santeria or you know whatever uh, whatever particular aspect of the occult was was dominant that. Christ goes in and rescues and redeems uh, that they there might be a testimony in those communities. All right, so if these occult powers are real, if these curses can work, you know, what is the real danger or the real problem that we might face? And I think one of the things that is addressed in the life of Balaam, and one of the reasons why I want to come back to this story, Balaam such a unique character because although he is a sorcerer, a fortune teller, he's a, he, you know, he's an astrologer. He's, you know, he's Miss Cleo. He seems to have a genuine relationship with God, with, with Yahweh, with Jehovah God, uh, which he confesses to the, to the people that come to offer him this uh, invitation from Balak. He, 
He says, I have to do what the Lord my God tells me to do. So we see a, a real danger here of combining, and I know you started to talk a little bit about it, sister, but of combining the faith that we have in God with any of these other occultic parts. And I think most of us would probably recognize pretty quickly uh, you know, that Christianity should have no relationship, no yoke, no unequal yoke with something like witchcraft. And yet I have heard from people who claim to be Christian witches. I don't understand it, but that's what they claim. Uh, we, we we should all recognize, I would hope, that a Christian should have no fellowship with uh, someone who claims to be a psychic or medium or can speak to the dead. And yet, some Christians uh, openly consult psychics or tarot card readers or palm readers. I think a tricky one for some Christians today, I think a more maybe a one that's more a little bit more subtle is the practice of yoga. Uh, there are doctors who will advise their patients when they're stressed to try yoga. I would advise you strongly not to do that. Yoga is a occultic practice. I know uh, some people say, well, it's just exercise and meditation. What's wrong with that? Well, if you study the history of yoga, where it came from, how it came to be, all of these poses and all of these stretches and all of these things all have their origins in the occultic practices and worship customs of 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 the the Oriental peoples. So, somebody asked me not real long ago if if I've kind of talking a little bit about it being a very stressful situation that I was in. And they said, oh, you should try yoga. It did wonders for me. And I says, well, <laughs> I can't do that. I can't practice. I can't do yoga. Why not? I says, because I'm a Christian. They said to me, well, I'm a Christian too. Um, so you can imagine how that conversation went from there. Uh, so any of this combination of occult or horoscopes, astrology, right? I can't, I can't, every time, I don't spend much time on it anymore, but when I do go to Facebook, there's inevitably a post from study that I thought was a Christian talking about something from astrology. Uh, the, if you were born in this month, you can expect this or that. Or, or, or my favorite, you know, the one I love the most, which is the one if, if you type amen or hallelujah or I accept it, Lord, on post, you know, you'll get $1,000 or you'll get rich or whatever. That, any of those occultic type ideas that become you know, the, the theological term is syncretism, but it's basically the combining of genuine faith with occultic practice or occultic doctrine. And it's a real issue in the church. It's a real issue among Christians. It's a real issue particularly among the most, I, I guess I would say the younger generation, the younger generation of believers, <laughs> the kids we raised in church, were raised to basically see all religions as equal and to sort of buffet-style pick and choose what parts of which religions they wanted to put together and develop their own personal truth. Uh, and this is a real 
plague in the modern culture, but it has its roots here in the story of Balaam. He was both a prophet of God as well as an occult sorcerer and fortune teller. Do you have any comments or questions on this aspect? Yes, Pastor. I think also that um, I know for sure I've heard Christians with the same same belief um, that tend to uh, believe in uh, astrology and they would want to say like somebody like me has one in the 50s and uh, I'm October and I don't see how that could be associated with uh, or, or that could same uh, as tributes as to though somebody born in this the October the 60s, October in the 80s, or in the 90s, or even the 2000s. So I always try to debate that with some of the Christian brothers who are sisters who believe in astrology. Yes, astrology has been a plague in the church, and a plague even before the church, all the way back to Israel. We cannot seemingly escape this idea that our fate is written in the stars and of course those of us who should know better and know that god is and god alone determines our destiny nevertheless we are we are always looking for some sort of secret knowledge some special knowledge something about me that explains why i like chocolate better than vanilla or whether whether why i'm a night person rather than a day person or you know why i'm this or rather than that and it's too i guess it's too difficult for us to do the hard work of you know really getting to know ourselves and the choices we've made and the reasons why those choices have led us to the place we are the be the person that we are it's easier to blame the stars, it's easier to blame the fact that, you know, we were born in the right month or the wrong month or whatever. But again, I, as you say, and, and I'll just affirm, there is no safe level of participation in the occult. And whether you like it or not, horoscopes, astrology, yoga, these are every bit as occultic as witchcraft and sorcery and, and medium psychic uh, phenomenon are. So no true follower of Jesus Christ should have anything to do with any of it. And yet it's so pervasive. It's so pervasive that it comes at us from so many directions. And a lot of times we don't even recognize it. I know that I was, uh, as a hiring manager in a company I worked for a few years ago, I was given a uh, personality test to give to prospective employees. And I didn't think anything about it at first, but having you know given it a few times, I started to really question this. I'm not saying all personality tests are like this one, but the one I was told to give employees was really strange and i began to feel very uncomfortable and you know that's that's usually the sign for me when the spirit begins to make me uncomfortable about something that's usually about time for me to get out and i 
I went back to my boss. I'm not using this anymore. I'm just going to talk to these people. And if I think they'll be a good employee. I'll hire them. And if I don't think they'll be a good employee, I won't hire them. But this stuff is so pervasive that it's embedded in a lot of our culture that we're not even aware it's there. And so you got to have that spiritual armor on at all times. If you have that, uh, that, uh, helmet of salvation on, if you are, if you are you're girded about the waist with truth, you will, your spiritual, uh, radar will go off anytime you encounter the occult. Anybody else want to speak to that before we move on? Uh, Bishop, a question concerning um, Balaam. Was he a prophet of God first, and then he became a prophet for hire or vice versa? <laughs> well, that's the million-dollar question. We Here's what we know about Balaam, and it's not much. Biographically, he seems to have been Aramaic, or at least he in his first prophecy, he claims that he came from Aram. What is an Aramaean? An Aramaean is a descendant of Aram. Who were descendants of Aram? Well, who was Aram? Aram was the son of Shem. So Balaam was a Semite. He was a Semitic person. Who are some of Aram's notable descendants? Well, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all descendants of Aram. The Arameans lived in the region that would be on a modern map comparable to the northern half of, of Lebanon and Syria and Jordan, all the way over into toward the Euphrates River, through Damascus, through um, Nineveh, all the way over to Babylon. So these people, we know Abraham would eventually leave, go up north, come down. He was Aramean. The Aramean culture would be around a long time. As a matter of fact, some of our Bible is written in Aramaic. Jesus spoke Aramaic. So this is this is all part of that culture of tribes that were related uh, through Abraham to the Jews. Remember, the Jews were just one small subset of all these other people, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Midianites. They were all the, the Arameans. These were all people that were had a common ancestry. Did Balaam know the God of Abraham, either through testimony of Abraham? Remember, Abraham was a prophet. Abraham was well-known in this area. He traveled through all of this area. He met with all of these different tribes and kings, and his testimony was well-known in the area. So I, I think it's possible that Balaam uh, being a cousin or a great nephew or whatever he was to Abraham may have known those stories and may have come to the knowledge of Jehovah that way. We also know that God kept witnesses for himself among all the different peoples of the world, at least you know through the time of the call of Israel out of Egypt. You know, God had the Melchizedek. He had people everywhere to maintain the testimony. At what point in Balaam's life did the occult get mixed in? The Bible just doesn't say. So I would say the 
the motive that is ascribed to Balaam is the desire for profit, the desire for wages, the desire for wealth. And so perhaps he saw a path, a path to wealth through the... And there were certainly far more people who would pay him to you know, kill a chicken and study the entrails than would pay him to pray to Jehovah. So maybe he was seduced by that, or maybe it was there all along. Um, but you know, what is made clear is that even though he did know the true God, he certainly was not above using it. And I think this is also key, and I want to—I don't want to totally besmirch Balaam's reputation. He may have, you know, some people did not have all the light that everybody else had, or, or all the knowledge that everybody else had. He may have thought perhaps his way of approaching Jehovah through the occult was acceptable, was the right way to do it. We, there's that verse that always kind of bugs me that in, in the Bible uh, that Paul writes in Romans about God winking at the religious practices of, of past generations, that you know, God allowed some things that he wouldn't allow anymore once Israel came into, into being. So how people approached God varied from tribe to tribe. The names people gave to God varied from tribe to tribe. The demons and false gods took advantage of their ignorance, brought people into bondage that way. But I think we learn from this story that Balaam had enough knowledge of who God was and had enough of a relationship with God, he should have known better. And whatever excuses we can make for him maybe being raised around the occult or having the occult part of his his upbringing. Uh, once he came into the fellowship of the true God, uh, he should have turned from all these these evil practices. Anybody else want to speak to that or anything else we've covered so far? Yeah, I'm just kind of thinking about the parallel of Balaam to today. And, you know, what we can learn from it and apply it to us now as believers, um, you know, where you see, like, there are some who call themselves prophets. And, um, you know, sometimes it's like a prophet for hire. You know, they, you need to pay them for they to speak a word over your life. So I'm kind of seeing a similarity. Um, what happened in the old and is happening with us today. And um, I think, you know, that we should take note of this and people should be aware, um, you know, we should be aware as Christians how we conduct ourselves, you know, in Scripture and not letting um, the world um, of fame or fortune or wealth, you know, turn us from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. I agree 100%. You know, Balaam's story is a warning. It's a tragedy, really. To have this gift, a gift that clearly came from God, and to abuse it this way did not end well for Balaam. It did not end well for the Moabites or the Midianites or anybody else who tried to take advantage of it. Brother, you had a question? Um, just um, let me be a Christian, Pastor. Just um, a when back to sister was the first question about Balaam. Um, in Micah 6, verse 5, 
It says that my people remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Borah, answered him. And from Shittim to Gilgal, in order that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. So he's mentioned there as well. As I said, Balaam is used a number of times in both the Old and New Testament as an example. God's faithfulness to Israel. Remember, Balak had hired Balaam to curse Israel. Balaam had a gift given by God, apparently, to do that very thing, and yet God would not let Balaam use that gift except to bless Israel instead of curse. So God would take advantage of Balaam's greed and Balaam's compromise, and he would take what was intended for evil and he would use it for good. And that's a, a great example. Uh, and we see that happen a number of times in, in other circumstances. But going back a little bit to what Sister Marjorie was talking about, about this selling out, uh, which is the only way I can think of to say, well, people who have gifts or talents or abilities from God, including spiritual gifts, supernatural gifts, and, and yet they're not satisfied or they don't feel like they're recognized or they don't feel like there's enough profit in it. So they'll either manufacture the gift falsely or they'll, again, some will turn to the occult. Some will turn to things. You know, today, any number of universities that specialize in training ministers insist on the ministers taking courses in psychology. Now, I'm not a psychologist. I, I do think there is some, say carefully, some value in understanding some things about human personality and human characteristics of mind and soul and spirit. But unfortunately, some of these courses given at seminaries will teach their students how to manipulate or or how to influence their congregations or the people that they minister to. And, uh, you know, it's so easy. We could find a hundred different ways. We could find a thousand different ways in which those who are supposed to be in service to God use ungodly methods and means to try to carry out that, whether they do it because they don't want to put the, the time and the discipline in to know the word and, and be filled with the Spirit and walk closely to God, whether they do it because they feel like there's more benefit or profit, whatever the motive. It, you know, the motive is, is not as important as just this choice that they make to compromise. And while we in the West today don't are not as obviously occultic as other cultures might have been or maybe are today, we still have our own versions of this through the psychology, through the manipulation, you know, through other means of, of gaining ungodly influence over others. Now, I want to say very carefully, uh, spiritual warfare does not just involve the spirit. It affects the mind, but it also affects the body. A demon-possessed person may be able to influence you in a very negative way uh, without you even being aware of that. But they can also physically seduce or physically compromise 
so we have to be careful that we're not just so we're not paying so much attention to the occult that we miss some of the physical manifestations that uh, accomplish the same uh, end result. Those who have compromised us will use any means available, including psychological manipulation. So I say to people all the time, be careful of who speaks into your life. Be careful of who you take instruction from. Be careful of whose, whose logic or whose philosophy you adopt. You need to be really on spiritual guard because the enemy will come to you in a variety of disguises. And something may not seem occulted to you because it's coming from someone who seems to be very sensible or logical or, or very modern, but it's just another occultic idea in disguise. And these spiritual forces act on our minds uh, to deceive us and discourage us, to create doubt, to sow seeds. But they are limited. These demonic powers can only go as far as we allow them to go or as far as God allows them to go. We should not be careless about just dismissing them as irrelevant, but we should not be obsessed with trying to uh, identify them all the time. The Holy Spirit gives us a gift of discernment, and if we will cultivate that gift, we will pray and ask for that gift, I believe he will give us that gift, and we can truly discern the true cause behind any in our life. Um, now, Paul used it often, and you know, I think of that slave girl at uh, Philippi that he discerned was demonically possessed. Jesus, of course, used it constantly to identify when demonic powers were present, and uh, we can have that same gift and that same power to do it ourselves. Uh, we should never assume anything. Uh, don't assume it's a demon unless you have evidence it's a demon. Don't assume it's the occult unless you have evidence it's the occult. We do have natural and personal uh, things that can happen that will cause us problems. We can make a bad decision. If you make enough of those bad decisions, bad things will come of it. That's not the devil. That's your own foolishness. If you stop doing the thing you're doing, the problem will be solved. Uh, to pray against the enemy in that occasion is a little counterproductive. We ought to be praying for ourselves. Nevertheless, anyone who's not paying attention, who's not staying sound in the word, in the spirit, can be deceived. And certainly Paul talks about giving place to the devil, letting the devil have foothold. So if you have a sinful habit, a sinful practice, if there's something in the, the music you listen to, the programs you watch, the books you read, the people you engage with, that is a door or a window for these occultic principles to gain a foothold in your life, uh, there will be consequences to that. If you give place to the devil, you're going to have to deal with that on a constant basis. So uh, constant inward-looking and a constant outward-looking are called for in spiritual warfare. So in thinking about how does the occult get a foothold in our lives, I know astrologies and horoscopes and that sort of thing is a popular means. I mentioned yoga earlier. But I think one of the main ways these days is just through the popular entertainment and amusements of, of life. 
of our childhood, of our adulthoods. I'm ashamed to say a lot of the, the movies I enjoy have occultic themes or occultic powers on display. Uh, just about anything these days that comes from Disney or Marvel or Star Wars or you know, any of these sources has some occultic you know, storyline or theme. There's some magical thing. There's some power. There's some demon. There's some, you know, uh, Disney will, will glorify anything except Jesus. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what's wrong with that company, I, but, you know, you can, you, you can be a demon with 12 heads and 40 tails, and they'll draw you a little cartoon, and, and, but, you know, they don't want anything to do with Jesus. It's, it's, it's sad. But uh, a lot of the worldly amusements today are vehicles for the occult. And uh, I think we can all do better. I know I can do better, making better decisions on how to spend our entertainment dollar or how to spend our time. And that leads to the other issue that comes with Balaam. At the end of his story, in chapter 25, we are told, or at least not in chapter 25, but we're told later, chapter 25 is a result of Balaam's counsel. Even after he prophesies blessings upon Israel, he gives counsel to the Moabites and the Midianites on how to since they can't beat Israel, how to get Israel to join in with them, uh, to become partners in their own cults. And so an invitation is given to the leaders of Israel to come and celebrate uh, a sacrificial uh, ceremonial feast, which includes all the food that was offered to the idols and includes the practice of sexual immorality offered as worship. These, these ancient cults would use their temples as houses of prostitution, both male and female, and that prostitution would be considered sacred to whichever god as an act of worship. So Israel's called to partake in this. They do. God judges them. We talked a little bit about it last week, but that idea of eating meat sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality will reverberate throughout all the rest of the scriptures. Even Paul will mention it in his letter to the Romans and his letter to the, to the Corinthians. It was so prominent and prevalent that at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, even though the Gentiles were told they would not have to submit to circumcision, they were told to abstain from things offered to idols and sexual immorality directly out of this Balaam story. So Balaam's counsel of how to corrupt or how to entrap the people of God in the occultic ways of the culture is something that is still being dealt with today. And uh, the modern equivalent, what is the modern equivalent of eating meat? Sacrifice to idols, I'll let your, you kind of dwell on that for a minute. But certainly, if you go back and look at what Paul said to the Corinthians, in chapter 8, he said, idols are nothing. Eating this meat's a matter of conscience in private. But in public, there's the question of the conscience of others and the question of your testimony before the culture that you are representing Christ to. 
And in chapter 10, he makes it very clear that no one can share in the cup of fellowship with Christ and the cup of fellowship with demons. And that is a that is a severe issue today in the church. I know as I was raised, we weren't allowed to go to movie theaters or ball games or uh, you know participate in any kind of worldly entertainments. Although I did remember my father taking us to Disney World once, only once. He took us. I don't know if we need to go that far to be so cut off. We have no contact with worldly amusements, but I think we have fallen much too far in the other direction. And these days, it's really kind of hard to tell where the world ends and the church begins. Many of the practices and cultural mandates of the world have echoed into the church. So Balaam's legacy is still with us today. And even the book of Revelation warns us about the way of Balaam. So this cultural indoctrination and assimilation of God's people that Moab tried to pull off here. As a matter of fact, there's a story here of one of the sons, Zimri, the son of the judge, uh, uh, the leader of Simeon, tries to bring Cosby, the daughter of one of the chiefs of Midian, to his family, I guess, to present as a wife, to create this alliance between the tribe of Simeon and this tribe of Midian, and Phineas, the son of Eleazar, kills them both as a uh, as a means of stopping the plague that was triggered by this attempt to combine what is holy with what is unholy. And that's a very strong message to us today. The holy and the unholy can never be reconciled to each other. That which is not of God has no place in the worship of God or the ministry of God. And we who are the people of God today have to be much more discerning about the, the, the degree of our own involvement in the worldly practices and forms of worship. All right, well, that's all I, I have for you tonight. I think we've finally done justice to the story of Balaam and should be able to move forward from here. Do I have any other questions or comments about anything we've covered so far? One last question, Bishop. <laughs> um, did Midian, Moab, Edom, and Ammon, did they know that they were all related to each other? Oh, I think so. I, 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 the fact that they could just speak to each other would have been a, a real testimony. But no, they... They had, each of these tribes or the, each of these cultures had their own way of keeping records of histories, not necessarily the way that we understand it today. You know, they were like daily newspapers or things like that, but they had cults. They had, you know, the priests, one of the, one of the jobs of the various priests of the various cults was to keep the histories of the people. So they would have, they would have known um, that they were, when we say they were cousins, let's be clear. There's been a number of generations here. So, you know, the Midianite, the the the, the son of Abraham and Keturah, Midian, 
it's been long enough. You know, it's been 400 years or more. So it's been long enough for that one person to have become a whole confederation of tribes. Uh, you know, one of those tribes is called the Kenites. They'll be mentioned in one of Balaam's prophecies. The Moabites, the Ammonites certainly would have known they're probably were quite proud. As I said, Abraham was not an unknown person. He was very, you know, to have a connection to Abraham was, was something to be celebrated. So I, I think they were aware of the distant relations. But again, I don't know who my great, great, great grandfather of 400 years ago was. So I can't fault them if they didn't. <laughs> I'm not sure I can go back Maybe I think our families traced our heritage back maybe 1600. So maybe I could get there. They would have at least been aware of common customs, common stories that would have been told around the various tribes, even though the details would have changed a little bit. So I think they knew enough to know that they had family connections. And that may have worked against them. Uh, sometimes. It's the family rivalries that are the fiercest ones. And we can seem to find common ground with strangers, but we rarely give quarter to those we know the best. Good night, everyone. God bless. We'll talk with you next week. This has been a production of the Lighthouse Church of God. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. You are welcome to join us for service every Sunday at 1030 a.m. and on Wednesdays at 7.45 p.m. For more information or to support our ministry, visit our website at www.lhcogfl.org or if you're in the Broward County area, we would love for you to visit our church located at 1890 Southwest 31st Avenue, Fort Lauderdale, Florida 33312. God bless you. Until next time, this is the Lighthouse Church of God, lighting the way through the storms of life.